She carried so much guilt and shame that she had stretch marks on her soul. She tried public appearances. She tried being reclusive. She tried leaving the country. And she tried finding a job. But the epic humiliation of 1998, when her affair with Bill Clinton became an all-consuming story, it has followed Monica Lewinsky every day since. It is her identity, and she just can't seem to shake it. And so in a Vanity Fair article from a few years ago titled Shame and Survival, Monica Lewinsky Lewinsky recounts her struggle with humiliation and shame over the years. She said this in the article, I know I'm not alone when it comes to public humiliation. No one, it seems, can escape the unforgiving gaze of the internet where gossip, half-truths, and lies take root and fester. We have created, to borrow a term from historian Nicholas Mills, a culture of humiliation that not only encourages and revels in schadenfreude, but also rewards those who humiliate others. From the ranks of the paparazzi to the gossip bloggers, the late night comedians, and the web entrepreneurs who profit from clandestine videos. Yes, We're all connected now. We can tweet a revolution in the streets or chronicle achievements large and small. But we've also been caught in a feedback loop of defame and shame, one in which we have become both perps and victims. We may not have become a crueler society, although it sure feels as if we have, but the internet has seismically shifted the tone of our interactions. The ease the speed and the distance that our electronic devices afford us can make us colder, more glib, and less concerned about the consequences of our pranks and prejudice. Having lived humiliation in the most intimate possible way, I marvel at how willing we have all signed on to this new way of being. In my own case, each easy click of that YouTube link reinforces the archetype despite my efforts to parry it away. Me, that intern, that vixen, or in the inescapable phrase of our 42nd president, that woman. It may surprise you to learn that I'm actually a person. In my early 20s, I was too young to understand the real-life consequences And too young to see that I would be sacrificed for political expediency. I look back now, shake my head in disbelief and wonder, what was I? What were we thinking? I would give anything to go back and rewind the tape. Well, if you're like me, I'm sure Monica Lewinsky's words resonate with you. I would give anything to go back and rewind the tape. We've all wished at some point in our lives that we could go back and rewind the tape to erase something that we did, to make it go away, to have no memory of it anymore. We've all been there. But listen, that sin, 
that moment that fills you with such shame, that is not you. Christian, that is not your identity. You are not connected to that moment like Monica Lewinsky is. That moment and that action and those words and those thoughts are not you. That sin that you are ashamed of doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to Jesus now. Your sins, your past, does not belong to you anymore. It belongs to Jesus now. So we don't have to go back and rewind the tape because the tape has been destroyed. If you're in union with Jesus, his past is now your past. And he's not ashamed of you. Jesus offers hope to those who, like Monica Lewinsky, have carried so much guilt and shame that they have stretch marks on their soul. And guilt can do that, can it? Guilt is heavy. Shame can do that. Our guilt-ridden and shame-filled and humiliating, embarrassing past can be a heavy burden that wears us out and just stretches us thin. And when we try to carry it, it will leave stretch marks on our soul, on our hearts. Instead of trusting that Jesus paid it all, we often try to keep paying for the things that we have done in the past. And living like that will stretch you thin. But Jesus offers hope to those who have carried so much guilt and shame that they have stretch marks on their hearts. And here's that hope. The past that you just can't seem to forget Jesus can't remember. We all have things in our past that we feel shame and guilt for. And the sooner we realize that we cannot atone for those things, then the sooner we'll start walking in freedom. The sooner we quit trying to earn our forgiveness, the sooner we'll start enjoying God and enjoying his world. Listen, your faith cannot flourish. Your faith cannot blossom if all you see is your sin, all you see is your guilt, all you see is your past. You have to focus and meditate on who you are in Christ. In order to be free, you have to think more about what Jesus did than what you did. You have to be amazed As you look at Jesus, you have to behold him. You have to be in awe and be startled and amazed over and over again that you have been united by faith to Jesus. And the Apostle Paul does that in our passage today. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul wants the Corinthian church to look at Jesus again, to Behold what he has done for them. To see once again that their past is gone. To see that their future is incredibly bright. And that the new creation has come. And so Paul will tell the Corinthian church that they are in good hands. He will tell them, you're not in the hands of social media. Whatever anybody says about you there, 
You're not in the the hands or you don't live in the gaze of the internet where gossip and half-truths and lies take root and fester. You do not live in a dimension where you're caught in a feedback loop of defame and shame. I do not live in a culture of humiliation where the gossip bloggers and the late night comedians and the web entrepreneurs can profit from clandestine videos of their past. The Corinthian church, there now, Paul says, you are now in a new dimension. You are in Christ. You are in his hands. And so are you, Christian. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Beginning in verse 16, hear the word of the Lord. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. When Paul says here in verse 16 that he no longer regards anyone according to the flesh, he doesn't mean according to the sinful nature. That's not how Paul is using this word flesh here. In other places, yes, Paul uses the word flesh to refer to the sinful nature, that which is in opposition to God, our our selfishness, our self-centeredness, where we want to be God and we want the glory. He's not talking about flesh that way. Here, Paul uses it a different way. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul and company, his friends who are with him, do not look at outward appearances anymore. They aren't moved or persuaded by someone's social status or their money or their popularity or their image or their personality types or their Enneagram number or how many followers they have on Twitter People don't impress Paul anymore. And people don't intimidate Paul anymore. People are just people to Paul. That's it. Boy, that would be a free way to live, isn't it? What if you lived in such a way that, you know what? Just people didn't impress you anymore. You thought, I mean, that's really cool what you did, but you know what? You're just like me. Or you weren't intimidated by people anymore. Walking into a room and feel like, oh my God, I'm going to die. And just walking in free. I'm in Christ. That's a great way to live. That's how Paul is living here. People don't impress Paul. People don't intimidate Paul. People are just people to Paul. Now, prior to knowing Jesus... Paul did regard people according to the flesh. He did base his opinion of of them based on outward appearances. He saw a big distinction between people, namely between Jews and Gentiles. Jews were good, Gentiles were bad. But Paul was also a very strict religious Pharisee, so he even looked down on fellow Jews who weren't as devoted and weren't as holy and weren't as spiritual as him. But now that he knows and now that he is united to Christ, Paul doesn't view people this way anymore. He simply sees them as either, they're either in Christ or they're in Adam. But Paul also says in verse 16 that he used to regard Jesus according to the flesh. He used to regard Jesus according to his outward appearance. And so when saying this, Paul most likely knew of Jesus before his conversion. And so Paul read what the papers had said, and he listened to what the pundits and the late-night comedians said about this new rabbi from Galilee. Paul just thought that Jesus was some wannabe Messiah. 
He thought he was just some redneck rabbi from way up north in Galilee who claimed to be God's son. Prior to his regeneration on the road to Damascus, Paul just thought Jesus was a man and not the God-man. But now, Paul knows who Jesus is. And now, Paul is in Christ. And that changed everything for Paul. It changed his perspective on life. It changed his philosophy of ministry. Being in Christ colored Paul's world and how he saw other people. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Can you catch the excitement in Paul's voice here? Paul wants the Corinthians to see Jesus again, to see what Jesus has done for them. He says, behold, get a load of this, y'all. The old is gone, and the new has now come. Paul wants them to see He wants them to get excited about all the new things that Jesus is doing and how he really is making all things new. That means, Christian, that you are proof of the new creation that is coming. You are part of the coming attractions. You, as a born-again Christian, living for the one who died and was raised, you are the living previews of what is to come. You're like a preview before the movie. You're a living preview, walking around for the world to see that the old is gone and the new has come. Now, the movie's coming. Oh, we're waiting for the movie, and it's going to be glorious. But right now, we, as Christians, are the living previews for people to see. And to see that something has changed and that we're different. Still sinful, yes. Still clinging to our Savior, yes. But something has changed. We're new. And so you are a living preview of what is to come. When the Holy Spirit regenerated you and made you alive in Christ, you became a part of the coming attractions. You are proof that the new heavens... And new earth are on the way. You are proof that Jesus is making all things new. You are proof that Jesus is going to make all sad things come untrue. And therefore, any time that you have a desire to worship, or you have a desire to serve, like maybe you want to step up and help with the coffee ministry, Anytime you have a desire to pray, you can come back tonight at 4 o'clock and walk to church property and pray, or come back at 5.30 and pray, or come on Wednesday night at 6 p.m. and pray. Anytime you have a desire to live for the one who died and was raised, that desire is proof that the old is gone and the new has come. That desire is proof that the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart. It's proof that the old has passed away, and the new has come. And when Paul says in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's talking about being in union with Christ. You've heard me say this phrase probably almost weekly. What is, it, what is union with Christ? Union with Christ is what has happened to every believer in Jesus. It means that we have been united to Jesus, connected to him, united in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. 
That was our catechism question this morning. What benefit is it? What is Christ's ascension? How does it benefit us? We're united to him even in his ascension. We are in Christ. And that phrase, in Christ, is the New Testament's favorite way to describe Christians. In fact, the term Christian only appears three times in the Bible. But the phrase, in Christ, or the phrase, in him, referring to Jesus, occurs around 165 times. This is the heartbeat of Paul's theology, and it forms his philosophy of ministry. Being in Christ, united to him by faith, that's what it means to be a Christian. So what does it mean that we are in union with Christ? It means that we are united and connected to Jesus at all points of what he has accomplished for us. We are united to and we share in his death because we were baptized into his death, Romans 6.3. We are united to and share in his resurrection because we are and we will be resurrected with him. We are united to and we share in his ascension because we have been raised with him. We are united to and we share in what is called his heavenly session, meaning we sit with him in heavenly places because our life is now hidden with Christ in God. And then finally, we are united to and we shall share in his soon return Because when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. And so the good news is that you and I are united to Christ at all points. It's what makes the gospel good news. It's the very heart of the gospel. As theologian John Murray said, nothing is more central or more basic than union with Christ. It is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Lewis Smead says, union with Christ. This is the sum and substance of the Christian's status. The definition of his relationship to Jesus. The large reality. I like that phrase. The large reality in which all the nuances of his new being are being embraced. This large reality that we're now being embraced in. What does it mean to be in Christ then? It means that God the Father loves you with the same love that he loves Jesus. That is just amazing. God loves you just like he loves his son. Puritan Richard Sibb said, What a comfort is this, that seeing God's love rest on Christ, as well pleased in him, we may gather that he is as well pleased with us if we be in Christ. Christian, God sees you now in Christ. And when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. And therefore, he has a smile on his face when he looks at you. Because when God the Father looks at his son, Jesus, he has a smile on his face. And when he looks at you, he has a smile on his face. That's how glorious Jesus' work for us is what he has done for us on our behalf. 
What Jesus did for us is so glorious and so acceptable to God that because we are now in him, God the Father delights in us. He delights in us because we are in his Son. I mean, he really does rejoice over us with singing. He really does love us with the same love that he loves Jesus. Scotty Smith said, God doesn't love us to the degree we are like Christ, but to the degree we are in Christ, which is 100%. Our union with Christ doesn't come in an installment plan. 37% at justification, the other 63% at glorification. Isn't that wonderful? God doesn't love us to the degree that we are like Christ because we're not like Jesus that much, are we? We have little, little moments, but to the degree that we are in Him, trusting in Him, connected to Him, united to Him, and we are in Him all the way, 100%. We are 100% justified. Christian, you are already justified. You have already been declared righteous. That happened at Calvary. So to be in Christ doesn't mean that you finally get your act together. It doesn't mean that you have to wait until the final day to hear that you're justified. To be in Christ means that God looks at you right now with all of your sin, with all of your struggles, with all of your failures, even all of your self-righteousness. And he says to you, well done, son. I am pleased with you. To be in Christ means that you are so connected to Jesus that what God the Father said to Jesus at his baptism, he now says to you. Because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus, God the Father says to you today, Christian, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Crazy, huh? God is well pleased with all his children. And so God will say this to you on that final day when he returns and you stand before him. And, and he says it to you right now. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. Man, that's good news. You see, once we belong to Jesus, we are the Father's delight. So let me ask you a question this morning. What do you think God's face looks like when he looks at you? Is he frustrated? Is he frowning? Not if you're in Christ. Not if you belong to Jesus. If you are trusting in Jesus alone to save you, then when God looks at you, he smiles. He's full of joy when he sees you. That's why the gospel is good news. Because you were pretty bad this week, am I right? That's why it's good news. So your answer to this question, what do you think God's face looks like when he looks at you? Your answer to that question will set the trajectory of your Christian life. How you answer the question, what does God's face look like when he looks at you? How you answer that question will set the trajectory of your Christian life and it will determine how you experience God. If the old is gone, 
that means that God's wrath at your sin is gone too. His anger at your sin is gone. See, somewhere along the way, I think we picked up this idea that God's still mad at us. Is God mad at sin? Is there wrath, holy wrath against sin? Yes, are sinners, are we born in Adam under his wrath? Absolutely. But once you come into Christ, you're no longer under his wrath, his anger, his frustration. Somewhere along the way, we just kind of pick that up. Like, Like if you go to somebody's house and they have a lot of pets and you sit down on their couch and you get up and you wear all black and you're like, oh my goodness. Right? Somewhere along the way, we picked up the idea that God is just perpetually frustrated with us, throwing his hands up in the air and saying, I'm just done with this kid. But if the old is gone, that means his wrath and his anger and frustration is gone. And if the old is gone, it means you don't have to get on the performance treadmill and try to earn your way anymore. If the old is gone, you're in Christ and now you're free. Free. Imagine someone being set, getting out of prison after 20 years and just that feeling of freedom of walking outside for the first time. That's us in Christ. We're free to be in Christ, to be a new creation. Literally, Paul says, you're a new creature. Means that you are born again. It means that you are like a newborn baby. Now think about that. To be in Christ means that you are like a newborn baby in God's eyes. Right? Soft, cuddly, needy, perfect. I watched a video last week, you know, when the babies do that little grunt where they're so cute and they're like, and you're just like, I just want to eat them up. I've said to Heather before, when I see those kinds of videos, I'm like, one more? She's like, I did six, okay? <laughs> we are done. Man, when you see a little baby, you think, just, just one more because they're so precious and so cute. And that's how God the Father sees you, Christian. He holds you in his arms, if you will, and he rocks you in a rocking chair looking at this new baby that he loves so much. And the joy that he has as he embraces you, he really does rejoice over us. As the prophet Zephaniah exclaims, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We are new creatures now. We are like newborn babies. And newborn babies have no past, do they? Think about that. Newborn babies have no past. Newborn babies have nothing in their past that makes them feel shame. They have nothing in their past to feel guilty about. They have nothing in their past that they try to carry that gives them stretch marks on their soul. They're perfect. They have no past. And they only have a future in front of them. That's us. We have no past. We only have a future. Our past is gone, and our future is incredibly bright. And so the past that you just can't seem to forget, Jesus can't remember. And that'll take a load off, won't it? We're new creatures, new babies in Christ, and we have no past. 
newborn babies are just cuddled and held and sang over and loved on, and that's us. That's the new creation. If you are in Christ, you're not commanded to be a new creation. Paul's not commanding them to be a new creation. You are a new creation. It's final. It's done. It's finished. The old has passed away. It's gone. Christian, you are a new creation, so stop trying so hard to be one. You are one. Rest in the finished work of Christ for you. You can't make yourself a new creation. It has to happen to you by the Holy Spirit. And part of what it means to be in Christ is that we are in God's hands. We now live in Christ's hands. That means we are under his power, his authority, his protection, his care. Teresa Morgan is a scholar. She recently, just this last year during COVID, man, she took advantage of COVID. She's written a fascinating scholarly work on Paul's use of being in Christ. She argues that it has the idea of being in the hands of Christ. And not to get all geeky, greeky on you, but in verse 17 here, Paul uses the Greek word in, which means in. Thank you, Greek language. But he uses it in the dative case. See, the dative case in Greek has several like meanings or nuances. Here, I believe it is a locative dative, meaning it's showing us the sphere, the location, the dimension of something, namely where we are, which is in Christ. It's the realm or the dimension in which we exist. And so Teresa Morgan says this, something that is in the hands of someone is in that person's power. Those who are in the hands of a greater power may also be under its protection. Being in the hands of is parallel to belonging to a greater power. If that power is God, then the faithful can have confidence that God will hear them, answer their prayers, and protect them so that the evil one cannot touch them. Now, according to her research, and I haven't read the whole thing. I just read some excerpts, and let me tell you why. This book cost $118, okay? I wasn't about to go to Heather and say, can I buy a $118 book? No. Can we have a seventh child? No. (laughs) Okay. So I haven't read everything that she said, but I've read some good portions of it, and it's just so fascinating. According to her research and the way that this phrase, in Christ, is used in the dative case, not only in the New Testament, but historically in the Greek language, when Paul says that we are in Christ, he's saying that we are in the hands of God now. We are in his powerful hands. We are in his protective hands. And so life in Christ means that now we live in a new sphere, a new location, a new dimension. Not to sound too much like the twilight zone, but we're in a new dimension. The dimension of the new creation. The dimension of the already not yet. We have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love, Colossians 1.13. Our location has changed from being in Adam and blinded by and under the power of the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 3, to now being in Christ, in his hands, under his care, 
under his protection. So Christian, you're in the hands of God now. You're not in the hands of social media. You're not in the hands of the internet. You're not in the hands of what anybody else says or thinks about you. You're in the hands of God now. And so tuck that away. Tuck that truth away into your heart because you just might need it later this week. Like on Wednesday afternoon or something. You're in his hands. You're in Christ. And being in Christ means that we don't have to carry our burdens anymore. We're in his hands. It means we don't have to carry the guilt and the shame of our past because he is carrying us. And so being in Christ will literally take a load off. It means that the old way of doing life is gone, trying to earn righteousness through the law, looking at outward appearances, people-pleasing, worrying about things, being weighed down by guilt and shame. It means that the new has come, new covenant blessings, forgiveness of our sins, safe in his hands. All the promises of God find their yes in him. And so if you're in Christ, you're in good hands. And the old way of doing things is gone. Giving in to shame, you don't have to give in to shame anymore. You have to give shame the time of day anymore. Being weighed down with guilt, no more stretch marks from a guilty past. Being a people pleaser, God accepts you. Who cares what anybody else thinks about you? You don't have to try to impress people anymore. Living in fear of what people think of us, no more of that junk. You don't have to be intimidated by people anymore. Feeling like an orphan. Christian, you have a father in heaven, and that settles it. Judging people by appearances, God looks at the heart. Trying to earn God's favor and love, Christian, you are welcomed home by God. And so when you're tempted to fall back into these old patterns, these old ways of thinking, stop and tell yourself, stop. The old is gone. I'm new. I'm a new creature. I don't have to think that way. I don't have to fall back into that old pattern. I'm in good hands now. And then you ask the Holy Spirit to help you stop falling back into those old patterns and those old ways because the old ways of doing things are gone. And so bitterness towards others, gone. Weighed down by guilt, gone. People pleasing, gone. Trying to earn God's love, gone. Being shaped by what other people think of you, gone. All of the old ways of doing life that we inherited from Adam are gone. And now we're in Christ, in his hands. And so the pressure's off. The pressure to perform is gone. The pressure to be everything, gone. The pressure to make a good impression, gone. The pressure to get people to like us is gone. The pressure to always have to have the answers, gone. The pressure to have to solve all of your own problems and bear the weight of all your own problems is gone. All of that is gone. We are in his hands. And now we can just rest. Man, he's holding me up. I'm in his hands. So understand this, Grace. Living the old way. Bitterness, guilt, Fear, shame, feeling like an orphan, living like it's all up to you. All of that will give you spiritual stretch marks. You weren't made to carry those burdens. In fact, you can't carry those burdens. You're in his hands.
And that means you can rest because you live in a fathered world. You're not an orphan. I was reminded of that this week. I was reminded that if I'm in Christ, then I live in a fathered world and I'm in his hands. And so I read the Heidelberg Catechism, question 26, which says this. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Here's the answer. That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, he is my God and Father because of Christ the Son. I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul. And he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this sad world. God is able to do this because he is almighty God and he desires to do this because he is a faithful father. Think about that. He's able to do this, to care for you, to provide for you everything your body and soul needs. He is able to do it because he is almighty God. And this gets at his heart now. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. That's what it means to be in Christ. Is that God upholds and rules this world, even everything happening in your life, by his eternal counsel and providence. He is your father because of Christ the Son. He will provide whatever your body and soul needs, and he will turn into your good, whatever he sends upon you in this sad world. And he is able to do because he is almighty God, but he also desires to do it because he is your father. All of that is what it means to be in Christ. And all of that means that you can trust him with whatever is going on in your life right now. So you might want to tuck away all of that Heidelberg catechism goodness in your heart because you just might need it later this week like on Wednesday afternoon or something. So what kind of God are we dealing with here, Grace? We're dealing with a God who rejoices over you with gladness. He quiets you with his love. He exults over you with loud singing. You bring a smile to his face. I mean, imagine that. Bringing a smile to God's face in spite of your sin, in spite of your failures, in spite of how you never measure up, God is overwhelmingly pleased with you, Christian, right now because you're in Christ. So believe that. Rest in that truth and breathe it in. You are forgiven and you are loved and you are clean and you are new. You're like a newborn baby with no past. The record and the hard drive of your sin and of your past has been erased. Your past doesn't belong to you anymore. Now it belongs to Jesus. And he took your past and it was nailed to the cross with him. And he took it down into the grave and he arose with your new record in his hand. And so your past no longer belongs to you anymore. It's not yours. It belongs to Jesus. And now your past is his past, his perfect life credited to you. And that means that the past that you just can't seem to forget, Jesus can't remember. 
Who God says you are is all that matters. And he says you're a new creature, a newborn baby in Christ, a child of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can know you. Thank you that you made a way possible by sending your own son. How incredible what your son did on our behalf, Lord, would so unite us to him that we are welcome in your presence, that we bring a smile to your face, God, even though we sin every day. How amazing it is, Father. Let this truth settle down into our hearts, Lord, so that we would live for you and honor you, Lord. Who you say we are is all that matters. It doesn't matter what somebody says about us on Facebook. It doesn't matter what somebody says about us on the internet. It doesn't matter what somebody says about us in our workplace or within our family or at our school. What you say about us, who you say we are, is all that matters. And you say that we're new. We're a newborn baby. We're a child of God. Help us to tuck that truth into our heart because we are going to need it later this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.